0: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today
1: hello and welcome to the podcast new books in islamic studies a channel with the new books network i'm your host shahna saqani and today, I talk with Pernilla Myrna about her exciting and excellently researched book, Female Sexuality in the Early Medieval Islamic World, Gender and Sex in Arabic Literature, published with Ivy Torres in 2020. Pernilla Myrna is an associate professor of Arabic literature and history at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, where she also earned her PhD in 2008. Her research interests include the representation of women in pre-modern Arabic literature Attitudes to sexuality in medieval Islam and women as creative subjects. In today's discussion, Myrna shares with us the origins of her book, some of its findings, and the process of collecting the many, many sources that she used to make this book an essential resource of many, I think, female sexuality, including, but not only, pleasure, sexual comedy, and women's bodies. Among Myrna's impressive range of sources are medical, Islamic legal, literary, and entertainment sources. Contrary to popular and even scholarly expectations, medieval erotic literature emphasized female sexual satisfaction, including via teaching male readers how precisely to ensure that their female partner reaches an orgasm. Other specific themes that we discuss in today's interview include the Greek influences on Islamic writers writing about sex and sexuality, the idea of female desire, the idea of the 2 seat theory, female orgasm, and lesbian love. Now, before I give away everything, here's our discussion. Hi, Pernilla. Thank you so much for being here with me and talking about your book. It was a complete pleasure to read and part of the pun here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for
2: having me. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book because I enjoyed writing it. And I, I hope I could convey some of the pleasure uh, of collecting the sources. And I had a lot of fun collecting the sources so, and um, also pleasure reading these sources.
1: Um, so the first question that we like to ask our guests is to tell us about their intellectual journey. How did you enter your chosen field?
2: Oh, I would like to start my, my journey when I was an undergraduate student. And that was a long time ago. I had the to study Arabic in Syria and Palestine and spend some years there. As I said, that was a long time ago. I came to Palestine in 1994 uh, after the Oslo Peace Agreement. And these were very exciting times. And these years were extremely important for me for many reasons. I would call them my formative years. I fall in love with Arabic language and literature uh, which, of course, had a great um, impact on my research. But one experience in particular um, would late, later inform my choice of research topic, and that was uh, that I came in contact with Palestinian women organizations, uh, which at that time, in 1994 and five were working for legal reform and struggling towards women's equality uh, regarding issues of personal status. And for me personally, that meant a kind of feminist awakening. So I learned a lot of, from the women I met there. I have to confess that feminism did not mean much to me before that. It was something abstract that I could not really relate to at that time. Uh, but there in Palestine, I had a chance to experience a feminist moment with all its uh, complexities. There were the obvious inequalities, like age long patriarchal structures and women who struggled to overcome them. And then there was a Of course, a precarious political situation, huge economic and social problems. And at the same time, other women who did not feel that they would benefit from legal uh, equality. So, legal. Equality benefited some women more than others. And these other women would rather stress men's responsibilities towards their families within the patriarchal system. Now, I I studied literature, Arabic literature, and also history. My special interest was in history, particularly social history. So from that on, I began to study women's history (laughs) Because I was interested from where comes the system of male dominance and female subordination. And um, I was deeply affected by Gerda Lerner, the creation of patriarchy, uh, which came 1986. And I was intrigued by this question, why did women collude in a system that subordinated them? Uh, and I was very influenced by Denise Candiotti's notion of patriarchal bargain, which made sense and seemed like a logical explanation. And I was also, of course, influenced by Leila Ahmed, Women and Gender in Islam. Uh, I bought her book early on and read it several times. And of course, Fatima Mernissi. Uh, But the book that inspired me the most was Fedwa Malti-Douglas' Women's Body, Women's Words. And I think it was (laughs) this book contributed me to want to continue with classical Arabic literature. Uh, And I did. But for several reasons, it took quite a long time before I started to work on my PhD thesis. By then, I had two children, and I was a single mother, which I think now was good, uh, as I had gained some maturity, (laughs) yes, and also experience from life outside of the academia, and also experience of some problems that women encounter, uh, and also joys. But uh, it made me. I had to stay in my hometown and the opportunities were like somewhat limited so uh, but then so it took me a while before I realized that I could combine my interest in women's history with a PhD in Arabic literature I as I said I was interested in this I mean where did everything started like a naive question where did this start from what from where does the, the patriarchy come from and so on so I wanted to study the oldest extant substantial literature on women. And uh, I found uh, biographical articles on women in Kitab al-Tabakat al-Kabir by Ibn Sa'ad, of Kitab al by Abel Faraj al-Isbahani, and also the book on women uh, in Ayun al-Akhbar by Ibn Qutayba. Uh, these are standard texts from the 9th and 10th century Gregorian. And these are texts that explicitly deal with women. But I examined narrative technique and also how women are constructed as subjects and or objects in different levels of the narrative. I I think, I think it it was extremely interesting. I learned a lot. And I think my most important Mm -hmm. finding was that how language was used deliberately to construct gender norms in especially the highly ideological portraits of the earliest Muslim women in Ibn Sa'd's Tabakat. A very simple example is that women are always active subjects of verbs. I mean, language is used here in an ideological sense. Women are active subjects of verbs that have to do with their religious activity, like Eslamat. She embraced Islam. But everything that has to do with marriage and sex, women are always passive subjects or objects of verbs that have to do with that. And that seemed to me a conscious choice, an uh, ideological choice, because it's not like that in um, entertaining literature or history, or like in, 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 in uh, Kitabularani's uh, biographies of the uh, Abbasid courtesans, for example. That was interesting, but the work on the thesis left me feeling somewhat frustrated uh, because my choice of uh, method and material limited me. I only worked on literary representations of women. Because that's all that we have access to. But I was struggling with the idea that there must be a way to go behind them. I mean, to say something about the real women who, who once lived there, uh, that, that, is, that is one thing. Uh, and, and the other thing is that I choose to examine standard works, there are several others, not many, I mean, because not many at that time who had really conducted um, research on women and, uh, in, in Abbasid time. But the ones who did, they used these works because they are easily available. But, I mean, only relying on these works, of course, they make, it makes a one-sided picture especially when I discovered that there are so many other works, but most of them are not easily available because they're not not available in critical editions. And some still are not edited at all. And uh, some are not extant. Uh, If we look at the biographical lexicon Föhres by Ibn Nadim, for example, we have several books that explicitly deal with women in some way or other. They're mentioned there, but they're not extant. But how can we say something about a specific time period if we only have these limited sources? Well, I'm still struggling with that, of course, because that's not so much we can do about it. But we can do something about that. Uh, I realized that there's so much more to say about this time period, so I was not finished with the Abbasid. I started to search for new sources immediately after I uh, finished my PhD thesis. Uh, Another thing is that I thought that this time period had been treated unfairly by influential scholars on women and gender, even those that I remember. I mean, relied on, uh, for example, Leila Ahmed, who I admire a lot, uh, she characterizes in women and gender in Islam, she characterizes Abbasid society as a highly androcentric and misogynist society. And this misogynist society had a crucial impact on the formation of Islam and on legal principles that have to do with women and gender. So, and she even claims that Abbasid society introduced gender hierarchy into Islam. So and at that time, this theory about the impact of Abbasids on women's status had for many become something of an indisputable truth. It was replicated in introductions to volumes on other time periods, for example. And it was given us, and still is, uh, given us a plausible explanation for gender equalities in Islamic literature during centuries. But the more I read, (laughs) I understand that this sweeping claim is based on a very limited sources and a quite prejudiced view of our past society, which I think is much more complex than that. So I wanted to look into this question. Well, as I said, I started to collect more sources on women's history and I saw the necessity to look into other genres and I Fortunately, I discovered erotic literature. I read an article by Everest Rosen, and I have to thank him a lot for that. Uh, so, and this erotic literature, erotology, is really a gold mine, and I use it a lot for my book. I started collecting sources for this research 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, and I uh, didn't know really what where it was going to end. I started to write the books a few years ago. But I know that I wanted to examine various genres on female sexu- w- w- what they say about uh, women's sexuality and compare them. That's all I, w- I knew. And I also wanted to look at the text in the context, the individual authors and the intellectual climate in which they worked. I also had envisioned some kind of feminist philology. Philology because we have to consider the context and also the the, the manuscript um, material. And we have to understand that the critical editions are not sometimes not good and perhaps not give a fair picture of what was really written and so on. A feminist because I was looking for structures of male dominance and female subordination. And also anything that challenged these structures. I mean, in particularly in the form of women's agency. That's where it started.
1: <laughs> think it's a great answer. It also addresses so many of the other questions that I had. How would you summarize um, your, your primary, if you have one primary argument, I guess? What would that be? Um, when I
2: studied the main scholarly discourses that I rely on, which are those that I found have most to say about female sexuality, like medicine and erotology, I guess we'll talk more about what that is later, and also religious discourse proper, and also compare them with adab literature, where I found most examples of women's voices in poetry. It it became quite obvious to me that scholars shared some uh, fundamental ideas, especially from medicine, uh, about uh, female sexuality, women's uh, sexual desire and pleasure. And um, there were also ideas circulating in broader society, such as the notion of the hypersexual woman. Perhaps we'll come back to that later. Uh, if, if there is a main argument, it is that women's pleasure and sexual fulfillment were regarded as important in, in this society. It's um, as important as male sexual pleasure and fulfillment for several uh, reasons. One is health reason and um, the other reasons as well. And also that women's own experience and expertise were taken into consideration and they were thought of having agency in terms of defining their own sexual needs and preferences. Often male authors were keen to demonstrate that a husband had the ultimate authority over the wife. This also meant that they had the ultimate responsibility to see to their wives' sexual satisfaction. Uh, They were responsible for that. And also now authority is not necessarily the same as power and much of the humor in the female-male verbal battles lies in women's ability to overcome their husband's authority by means of their verbal power. Now, back to the main argument, this attention paid to women's sexual needs is, as I said, prominent in all discourses that I examined, with the exception of one, religious discourse. It struck me and it was really curious. The legal discourse in this period is that entirely prioritized men's sexual needs and obliged women to be sexually available. So, Whereas medical discourse, to some extent in erotology, point to the importance of mutual satisfaction in marriage, the religious discourse proper at this time is entirely focused on man's satisfaction, which constitutes an anomaly. I don't know if that's an argument, but that's a finding. <laughs> we all know that some of this literature lived on longer than other. Erotology, for example, is now only available in almost only available in in manuscripts. Uh, Medicine is read by many, and they had a huge impact. Medicine on both Islamic and medicine, and also on later on European medicine in the Middle Ages, and also the religious discourse proper had, of course, huge impact on later time periods. But today, when we look at this time, we tend to look at one genre only. Religious discourse is more uh, well known than, for example, erotology. But if we look at all of them, we, saw, we see the nuances that always ca- characterize all societies. And if we, instead of focusing on like large structures, look at these individual ideas and so- see how they intersect and interact, we can get a quite different pictures of what was really going on, like, so to speak, in everyday life in this society. That is how I would summarize my main finding. But then there are many, many small, short arguments as well.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that I loved so much about the book is that you use so many different genres to provide as elaborate or complete a picture of the attitudes towards and understandings of female sexuality as was possible for you. And it's really thorough. You address tafsir, jurisprudence, Islamic legal attitudes, poetry, erotic literature, medical literature. So I imagine that it must have been a very painstaking process. And I would love to hear about your sources, and um, anything about these sources that you'd like to share with us. Um, and perhaps maybe the process of collecting the material, maybe who their audiences are. Um... Well, as, as I
2: said, uh, I had been collecting sources for a long time now, over 10 years. So even if I did not actually start writing the book until a few years ago. So I, I was familiar with adab literature, that is anecdotal literature. And I also had some idea about poetry. But the defining moment, so to speak, uh, that was when I discovered erotic literature and understood that what a marvelous source that is. Actually, that is what made me decide to work on sexuality. And I, about 10 years ago, I read an article by Everett Rosen. And since then, I've been studying the earliest extant erotic manual in Arabic, which is called Jawami al In English, it's known as Encyclopedia of Pleasure or Compendium. Pleasure. It was probably written in the late 10th century Baghdad. We don't know that for sure, and we don't know exactly who the author was, but it contains a lot of quotations from uh, Abbasid literature. Uh, So I would define its content as Abbasid. This source. Or this, which is only available in manuscripts or, and in um, bad editions. I found so much material in it. It's divided into disciplines, so it contains a lot of medicine and philosophy, erotology, uh, erotology that is basically influences from Indian erotic literature such as Kama Sutra. And, it, and, and erotology deals with sexual technique and etiquette. But it also contains philosophy, jurisprudence, poetry, anecdotes, and also, of course, the occult sciences, like uh, physiognomy and magic. And it also contains erotic stories with female protagonists and some of them elderly women who are experts, sexual experts and advisors. So it's, and some of these stories are mentioned in the bibliographical catalogue Fehrist by Ibn Nadim, who was perhaps contemporary with this author. So it's obvious that the encyclopedia builds on and cites sources that circulated in the Abbasid and Buyid era. So from there, I started to also search for medical literature, and there's a lot written about it compared to erotology, for example, but not curiously about sexual medicine. Especially not about female sexuality. Just a few articles actually. But there is substantial research done on antique and late antique Greek medical theories on female sexuality, which and also medieval European medicine, which was uh, influenced by Islamic medicine. And that helped me a lot. As for legal discourse (laughs) <laughs> there are so many new, interesting and important books on issues related to gender in Islamic legal discourses, um, some of which I was not aware of when I wrote the book. Ali, Ali's book on marriage in early Islam was very important for me, and it struck me when I read it, when I read about the early Abbasid jurist's stance on men's and women's sexual rights, that it contradicts everything taught by medicine and er- erotology. So that's where I got this idea mm. to write this book, yeah. And I also had help from later books on in the, this genre of uh, erotic manuals, or I would call them Islamic sex advice manuals. Uh, some of which rely mo- uh, much more on religious discourse, especially hadiths and so on. So my main informant there was Suyuti, who lived around 1500 in Cairo. Uh, from his work, from his <laughs> uh, sex and marriage manuals, I found the relevant verses in the Quran and tafsir. From there on, I went on to tafsir. And of course, I have tried to search all available hadith collections in tafsir uh, that were composed up to the 10th, 11th centuries. As for the audience, if we start with um, Encyclopedia of Pleasure, it's directed to a male audience. And the audience is even defined by the author of the book in the introduction. Um, He talks to a zarif, which is a um, sophisticated man of the world who is going to use this knowledge and sexual techniques taught in the, his book in order to distinguish himself from common people. That is explicitly uh, stated here. And I believe that the author was a, a secretary in the Boujid administration. Well, we don't know, but I think so. And that his intended audience is men from the same social group as he belonged to. Uh, although some of the material he cites and relies on have a more general audience. And as for medicine, I think it, medicine is very interesting. because Medical authors were sponsored by elite families and some of them by the cali- Caliph himself. And of course, they addressed them, but they were also, some of them were also practitioners and then met patients. And probably also patients from non-elite social groups. There were also hospitals. So the question is whether they treated women or not, or if they um, address women or not. Sometimes they seem to do that, but it's quite difficult to find a female audience. I tried to, uh, like, define a female audience. Uh, I I, I talk about the, uh, in the book, uh, but possible that there was a courtesan's handbook and so on, but it's difficult. Uh, at least we can find some uh, passages that seem to be directed to women
0: but that's all i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: So let's talk about sex now. (laughs) You you mentioned that one of your findings is that there's a a difference in the attitudes towards female sexual activity in the Islamic legal attitudes and in the other sources that you're looking at. You discuss in detail men's sexual desires instead, but the material that was available to the fuqaha or the jurists in non-legal sources meant that they had the option to offer different rulings about sexual satisfaction. You note that in one of the last chapters that it can't be because of protecting gender hierarchy because even in the medical even the medical and erotic literature which um, which which takes say something like female orgasm very seriously still remains patriarchal. So the scholars had different options that they could utilize while still um, I don't know caring or taking seriously female sexual agency. Yeah, uh, that is a very interesting question
2: and. I believe something that we have to look further into. Uh, it's very difficult for me to answer it, but of course I can guess. I'm not sure what is going on inside the jurist circle, so to speak, because I'm, I'm not conversant with uh, this discipline and the um, incentives and methods of this discipline. Uh, but Kesia Aligan discusses it in her book on marriage in early Islam. And she suggests something like that the jurists had created a strongly gendered model of conjugal rights and duties. So they had defined men's and women's different rights in marriage so sharply that women's sexual claims did not fit in there. But from a larger perspective, in, in, in the society as a whole, we could perhaps understand it as a part of the jurists, the Foucage's resistance, oppositions to the current social mores, especially of the urban population. There must have been a large female presence in public if we think about the jewelary the, the 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 slave girls, the courtesans, and uh, female slaves, we know that these slave women were more free to socialize with men and to have love relations outside of marriage etc that's at least what <laughs> the sources say uh, if we take them seriously but um because in, in, in the urban centers, the families contained both slave concubines and free wives. And, and other slaves who were not, female slaves who were not uh, concubines, just a few uh, of, the, of the female slaves were concubines. They could be I mean, domestic servants, of course, but they could also be like more uh, entertainers and companies to the women, uh, friends to the women in the family and so on. Many in the populations were children of slave concubines. So because of this, there was a mixing of free and slave women. And there were also different degrees of slavery, of course, free and born to slave women, etc. So because the Jawari had certain freedom when it came to sexual activity, some of this freedom perhaps passed on to free free women as well, and freed slaves and so on. So this relative freedom and relative acceptance towards Uh, women's sexual activity outside of marriage, and that was definitely a threat to a patriarchal society. And and of course, control of women's sexual capacity is fundamental for patriarchal ideology, because that's uh, control of women's reproductive capacity. Uh, So that was the first priority, and to make women submit their sexual agency to men, and because the Threat was so big, I guess. Uh, they had to like uh, repeat this and nag about this in all kinds of media, like using Hadiths, for example, and tafsir, say <laughs> everything is pointing at that women have to give up their sexual agency to men. Well, I think it's, it is interesting that this strict gender division of rights somewhat loosened up later. Later, at least, many jurists gave b- women the right to sex every fourth month or something like that. Uh, and we have also the hadiths. An advice circulating that promoted women's sexual rights, and they began to circulate later. Uh, so perhaps the early jurists were successful, they had influenced people's opinion on women's sexual autonomy. So that they could like afford to loosen up their strict model or something like that.
1: Can you tell us about the idea of 10 parts of desire? Which I had heard about this. I had heard about this before. I had also heard about a hadith. A lot of those claims were attributed to Ali. Or the 11th, that there were 10 parts of desire and nine for women and one for men. And, and of course, God then gave women extra, I don't know, something with modesty and so that <laughs> They don't. They're, 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 they yeah. don't express that desire, and so on. You mentioned that it doesn't originate in Islam. I think it comes from Greek mythology. I don't imagine yeah. most people yeah. to associate sexual desire with women, but with men instead, as in any patriarchy, right? Male sexual desires are prioritized. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about this idea in general? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. I think it's so interesting.
2: One thing is that it shows that not only Greek medicine and uh, science um, was somehow transmitted to into Arabic and into Islamic culture, but also myths. Somehow, it originated from uh, Greek mythology, as you said. Uh, This there is a story in Greek book, Greek book from the first or second century. Uh, about Teresa's a blind prophet. And Teresias was transformed to a woman for seven years. And once when Seves and Hera quarreled about who feels more pleasure f- of love or from love, that's it, presumably sex, uh, men or women, they said, okay, Teresa has been both. He has been both a woman and a man. So he has experience from both. Uh, so let's ask him. And Teresa said, his answer was that. Men, out of ten shares, ten shares, men enjoy one share and, uh, women enjoy nine shares. And I haven't seen it, this story I haven't seen it translated in, um, into Arabic, uh, I mean, it, attributed to Theresias. Yes. But instead, we find it in uh, as an Hadith, as you said. And also, I found it as uh, told by a Persian woman called Bunyanducht. And this, that's a story that is also mentioned in Fahris by Ibn and Nadim. And, Seems to be Zoroastrian. That's a Zoroastrian background, it seems to be. Uh, but she, the, the variant there is that, like, I think there are 11 shares instead of 10 shares <laughs> of And some said
1: 99 shares or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. As a hadith, there are two variants. <laughs> one,
2: there are two variants. And both in Shia. And in Shia, it's attributed to Ali and Sunni to the Prophet. Uh, and in both Shia and Sunni tradition, there are two variants. Uh, one is that women have nine shares but not pleasure now is shau meaning sexual appetite women have nine shares of sexual appetite men have one and but god made women modest or shy so they don't have they don't mm-hmm. fornicate and there is un- another variant when m- women have ninety-nine shares of shahwa out of ten, uh, well, 100, uh, mm-hmm. an out of one hundred, extreme amount of shahwa, women have, and I think that was a popular notion because we see it elsewhere. That perhaps it's connected to the belief in 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 medicine and natural philosophy that. Women are closer to nature somehow. Perhaps mm-hmm. not medicine, but at least a natural philosophy. This is what I call the notion of the hypersexual woman, which seems to have been widespread and popular. Uh, so it's taken up in, in Islamic literature here and also in erotic. Of course, it's a very popular notion in erotic literature where um, women are extremely desirous.
1: It's it's just really fascinating because you know, and it's a thing that happens in in, in all patriarchies where sometimes the idea that they that women have more desire or they're more they have a stronger sexual appetite is still is held against them. And when they don't have yeah. a strong sexual desire appetite, that's also held against them. In both cases, their sexuality ends up being restricted. Either it needs to be contained or, they don't. They don't have enough sexual desire or or appetite to satisfy their men, and so the men need to have other options and other outlets. It's a punishment in both cases. But that was just. Those were so fascinating. I mean, I really appreciated and loved those details but about this, the two seed theory. They're saying that both the women and the the men, both partners, produce semen, and that that semen is it essential for procreation as well, or is it just essential for female orgasm?
2: In Greek theory. Um Famously, Aristotle holds that only males have seed, and that is the one seed theory. So there, there are two different, the two seed and one seed theory. But as I said, all um, uh, Islamic medical authors believe that both women and men have seed. This, of course, had uh, several implications for the for attitudes to women's uh, sexual satisfaction or sexual fulfillment, even if they were wrong, it had some good consequences. They also believe both because uh, women have to ejaculate in order to uh, a conception to take place. And in in Greek medicine, this is sometimes like um, represented as a mechanical, almost mechanical process. Women they, they have orgasm they you don't have to do anything <laughs> they will have it automatically uh, but the Islamic medical authors they they realize that it's not that simple sometimes advice advise men on how to help their Female partners to reach satisfaction, sexual climax, and satisfaction in order to ejaculate. Not very detailed. The details come in this erotic in, 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 in drama and in German leather, but not in medical uh, literature, but at least they touch upon the subject. Not only because it's necessary for conception, it's also necessary for women's health. Because they believed, and this comes ultimately, it comes from the Greek notion of. Uh, wandering womb, which they didn't really accept, but they said that there are other serious diseases that had to do with the the uterus. And some of them are caused by dammed up semen. That is, if women don't ejaculate semen, this semen will stay in their bodies and uh, become damned up and perhaps Put pressure on their uterus and cause some serious dis- uh, ailments, like um, a very serious disease called uterine suffoc- suffocation. I have seen references to إختناع in, Rahim in Islamic medical, in Arabic medical literature up to modern times. So it was a really influential theory. I don't know if they really believed in it, but uh, they mentioned it all for centuries. So, so this uterine suffocation, suffocation and other diseases were caused by sexual abstinence, which means that women need to have regular sexual activity, regular orgasm and ejaculations. And Islamic medicines, one of the main contributions to medicine Islamic medical authors was field of pharmacology. So you find numerous recipes for almost everything and a lot of them a, a lot of recipes and um, remedies for sexual dysfunctions and also for pleasure enhancing uh, therapies and most of them were di- directed to, to men but there were also recipes for women's sexual problems and um, they, they also saw the the need for uh, pleasure-enhancing therapies for women, not only for men. I quote in my book Ibn Sina, who um, talks about something that sounds very modern, namely genital corrections and genital corrections in the form of vaginal tightening and penis enlargement. And this is because. And and he says that this is not—it's not shameful to talk about genital corrections because sometimes the couple couple needed to match each other, and that is one of the therapies they suggest, and there are recipes for that. So, uh, well, yeah, it's generally agreed upon that uh, it's important for women to uh, reach orgasm.
1: You know, one thing. One thing that I struggled with is that on the one hand, we've got clear examples, like a lot of evidence of women talking about their sexual desires. And 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 these aren't just, you know, these aren't just free women. These are different kinds of women. These are ordinary enslaved women. There are courtesans. But then on the yeah. other hand, we don't expect them to be doing this. We don't expect yeah. them to be expressing, to be able to express their sexual desires this way. So publicly in through poetry, for example. So too many scholars, as you mentioned, have concluded that these accounts Maybe fictional, that the women who are writing about their genitalia, their sexual activity, they, this is not supposed to happen and therefore they didn't exist. You're more careful. You recognize that maybe some of them are fictional, but they can't all be fictional. So basically they exist, but we don't want them to exist. We don't expect them to exist. And so therefore they don't exist. We end up projecting our own impressions onto them. I want to know how this works. How, why, when you do have all this evidence um, why are scholars still willing to just say, no, this can be real?
2: Well, I, I,
1: I think you're absolutely right
2: there. And there's <laughs> a and <laughs> short uh, answer to that, uh, that we, we apply modern type of chastity and morality to other historical contexts. And we should be careful not to do that. And medieval people... I think, did not have the same barriers when it came to speaking about sex. And I I don't think it was a class issue. Like people from the lower classes could talk more about Mm -hmm. sex than the upper classes. No, because people from the upper classes, who are often the audiences of this other literature, which is full of uh, sexual jokes, they appreciated sexual jokes, even burlesque. Like Mujoon, I talk about the genre of Mujoon, which is burlesque, uh, sexualized jokes, uh, talk. And also the obscene, it it, it was part of the humor. I'm not of the opinion that pre-modern people were were radically different from modern people. Mm -hmm. No, but they definitely had a different sense of humor. Uh, And and this humor is often sexualized and sometimes gross and offensive. Definitely not politically correct. Uh, and, of course, women share this type of humor. Why shouldn't they? And, and, and women were known to have a strong oral culture, and they were often admired for their eloquence. So, for example, um, uh, there are these um, poems describing uh, genitalia. Uh, and that was a popular poetic motif. There is a set of poems in Arabic called Al Ayriat. From the word for penis, so that the poems about penis, <laughs> describing penises, they're like lampooning it uh, when it doesn't work well, and <laughs> or they're boasting about their penises and so on. And why in uh, in in such pleasure, there are a couple of poems ascribed to women describing their genitalia. And why shouldn't they? And also in other um, um, poetry anthologies. So. Uh, uh, if that was popular among men, uh, I, I, I can't see a reason why we shouldn't believe when the sources say that women did that as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's, so let's go ahead and talk about female voice in poetry. You show in, with many examples that women's verbal proficiency granted them so much agency, like being able to get a divorce by publicly criticizing, criticizing their husband's, know, say, inability to sexually satisfy them. Um, like they'll talk about their husband's penises publicly, right? Um, uh, sometimes using euphemisms, but people got the point. What kind of women were able to do this? Are they, are, and, and, and were there any consequences for doing this? Um, many of the, the poems uh,
2: in which women criticize their husbands, many of these poems are anonymous. There are quite a few. But they are anonymous, most of them. But some are ascribed to named women. And in, in these cases, these women are Umayyad or early Abbasid Arab women, that is they belong to an Arab, belonging to an Arab tribe Uh, and marriage in these cases would be a a family matter, or in other cases as well, but uh, one of my examples um, is a verbal battle between uh, a girl called Edahna and her husband, who was a poet Al-Ajaj, and they came from the tribe uh, Tamim and they lived around 700 but poetic battle is reproduced and probably polished in Abbasid literature. Uh, I would say that perhaps they put, it, perhaps it was all also invented that the poems were there, but they put them together and made a battle of that, uh, or made uh, uh, listen, them, them work together. Uh, but anyway, Dahna accused her husband for impotence as she wanted to divorce from him, uh, but the real reason was that she disliked him for his old age. And she managed to get her father's support. So she got her father's support. So even the divorce was a family matter. And that is why, of course, it was acceptable. As to accusing husbands for impotence, uh, that was one of the few uh, at least if the husband failed to consummate the marriage within a year there was a reason could be a reason for uh, the woman to claim to ask for a divorce. So it became an area in which women had some agency and they had also the right to talk about it because if they didn't talk about their husband's impotence, how would anyone know about it?
1: And what about female sexuality as a target of verbal abuse in poetry? How how is the female body, their genitalia, for example, derided by by male poets? Because what is especially interesting here is that it's not always in, in these women's lifetime that, that they're being derided. But in many cases, it seems it's long after they were dead.
2: Women's sexuality um, could be an asset, but it could always, also always be turned against them. And I think we see this everywhere. It's not particularly Islamic or anything. Uh, this is a general feature in all societies that have at least some traces left of uh, patriarchal norms. Uh, and today we would call it uh, slut-shaming, I guess.
1: And, women... and porn, uh, revenge porn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking the whole time. Just yeah. like revenge
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is the same phenomenon. At least. Yes. There are many forms to do it, of course. And when we look at history, when we read about um, historical women, their personas in history books, because history has definitely been dominated by patriarchal norms, we have to be critical because there are many women who may have been. Demonized or shamed in some ways or other, so perhaps not by the contemporaries because the contemporaries might have admired them because they were strong, and, and so, uh, but by later narrators and historians. And I think that was, I take some examples in my book of um, Abbasid courtesans and uh, especially about the Abbasid courtesans who probably were admired um, or had good standing among their, uh, I mean, in their group, but were shamed, especially after their death, perhaps also when they lived, I don't know. So I took upon myself to restore the reputation of these women. And this was very refreshing because I wrote this during Me Too. So it was my Abbasid Mm. Me Too moment. I was very inspired by Me Too. (laughs) When we look at at female sexuality as the target for verbal abuse in poetry, uh, it was present in some types of poetry. And this poetry was popular. It's awful to read, actually. In Umayyad satire, Abbasid mujun and Late sochov, a genre called Sohuf, we meet extremely disturbing images of women. This is definitely misogyny, no doubt. And there is, in this time period, a clear misogynist trend as well. It flourished alongside other genres. I would not characterize Umayyad and Abbasid poetry in general as misogynist,
1: but uh, we definitely have a misogynist trend also. So let's talk about same-sex desire. There, you know, you talk about these theories that were offered to explain same-sex desire and activities. I mean, my, my personal favorite was the battles between a formerly lesbian and then this, or I know these are anach- anachronistic terms, but these battles between uh, those former lesbians and the women who are still lesbians. And then the heterosexual woman wins, right? By, because she ends up uh, eliciting sexual desire in the, in, the, in the lesbian for a man. So the idea that lesbianism could be resolved by a good penis in sex. you know, women <laughs> desire women because they haven't had good sex yet. Um, but did they ever explain male homosexual desire and activity in similar terms? Yeah, uh, uh, There's a lot about, to say about this, <laughs> but <laughs> no. uh,
2: above all, I was astonished to discover that there were so many theories about same-sex desires. And... and, and um, um, I, I mostly read about the female, but also male, and some of these theories had to do with physiology, temperatures, etc., and some with anatomy, uh, some with the seed, some I would say gave sociological reasons. But lack of good sex was definitely one, uh, as you said. But I haven't seen they they don't give the same theory for male homosexual desire. But there is one theory. That homosexual desire or same sex desire is caused by or triggered by seclusion, and that goes for both. Uh, that is, in this case, men they would prefer to have sex with women, but they cannot easily find women because of seclusions, and um, there are plenty of sleigh boys outdoors, so they would like to look at women, but they don't, and they look at boys instead, and that like uh, like. Um, what this author thinks like destroys their desires, so they direct their desires towards boys instead of women. I la- what, what I like most is that I found this, as you said, a set of poetry and sayings attributed to women, when they themselves explain why they prefer women. And so I decided to, in my chapter on tribadism, osahak, which means uh, grinding. I decided to let the sources and let the women speak for themselves, uh, and some of these female voices said that they choose to be they choose to be intimate with women because of fear of pregnancy, so it was more practical, uh, but several also expressed that they prefer women even if they had the choice they would and then you mentioned I just have to say something about my choice of um using the term homosexuality if homosexuality is an anachronistic term uh, and yes it's a modern term but i personally think that the phenomenon this this term covers is not i, I mean i know this is a huge question and we don't have to, time to talk about it here but in short uh, those who adopt a constructionist view would say that we should use the arabic terms and they mostly talk about men but um, the, the Arabic terms are terms for acts, that is, uh, pre-modern people think about sexuality as as acts, acts like penetration, active, being penetrated, passive, both to these uh, goals for men, and for women it will be sahak grinding. But I think that this constrictionist view is really to dehumanize pre-modern people. So, so uh, homosexuality as a term involves both the act of ha- the act of having same sex, having sex with someone from the same sex, and feeling romantic attraction towards the same sex. In, in, in this case, I, I could change my mind, of course, but the poems and sayings by women in this case that I found, they show both attractions towards women and wish for en- a wish for engaging in grinding, I mean the act of grinding. Uh, and. I also think I can see that they also identify like being. They call themselves Sahakat. They are, and, I, and which I which I translate as lesbians. So they are. It's also part of their identity. But
1: yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And as we close, our last question is usually to ask the author about their current or any future research. What are you working on now that we can look forward to reading in the near future? Hopefully?
2: Yeah. I'm working on very exciting things and very enjoyable things. Namely, I have been working on the preparation of a critical edition of um, Encyclopedia of Pleasure. And I have collected manuscripts, but I didn't have so much time to work on that. uh, So, But I'm extremely happy to have got fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton the coming academic year. So, I will have time to prepare the critical edition.
1: Congratulations on the fellowship.
2: Thank you. So, um, and I've also been working for some years now on another project, a research project, which is on the sex advice manual or erotic manuals as a donor. So, up to approximately the 17th century, I've been on the manuscript traditions because these we don't have. Not, we don't have many c- good critical editions of the, these books. So I'm working on the manuscript tradition and on the reception of these books. Primarily but reception uh, in uh, also looking at manuscript evidence on how comments and to whom were these books directed, who were the readers of these books. Hopefully I will have time to work on that as well.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Pranilla. This was a pleasure and I'm very excited for your future research as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So that was my conversation with Pernilla Myrna about her very, very highly recommended book, Female Sexuality in the Early Medieval Islamic World, Gender and Sex in Arabic Literature, published with IB Taurus in 2020. Again, this is Shahnaz Aqani. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next month. Stay safe.